Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Time for another dose of Radiotherapy. It's me, Panel Beater. And I think I've got with me on Skype, Dr. Sharma. Can you hear me? You, uh, you sure can. Uh, here we are. Can you hear me without too much static there? There's just a little, little simmer in the background. Nothing too distracting, though. We'll pretend it's not there. Yeah, that's good. Good morning to you. Great to be here. <laughs> uh, well, not that fantastic. Uh, obviously, a shorter about an hour's sleep. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Did you know that um, heart attacks um, go dramatically up when we go into the first day of um, of uh, daylight saving and down when we come out? Look, uh, I've got to say, it doesn't surprise me because we know these correlations um, become apparent with things like heart attacks on, say, Monday mornings. Um, yeah. So. It- Time that there's a, this kind of anticipatory stress, and and we, we know that these stresses are so interlinked with with adequate sleep. Well, uh, so you, you, the the rush of catecholamines, as you, you as we say, you might get, yeah. uh, may well be just the the straw that breaks the the camel's back for a lot of people with cardiovascular disease. Uh, I, I, but, uh, no chest pain for me yet. Today. <laughs> good good news. I um I obviously don't know the biomechanics of that, but the reason I came across that little tidbit was by a book last uh, year by Professor Matthew Walker, and it was on sleep. It wasn't on cardio uh, cardio health. It was on sleep. And and um, in his sleep research, they uncovered this bizarre statistic around daylight savings. Um, and, it was, and he was just trying to underline the point that um, sleep is so closely correlated with heart health, not just brain health, not just all the other bits and pieces. I suppose. I mean, we, we, uh, one of the things we're told to look out for because it's so easily overlooked is the uh, effect of something like sleep apnea. So a lot of people who snore, some of them uh, are actually having this medical condition of obstructive sleep apnea linked with a whole host of health problems in and of itself, uh, you know, like a heart health being being one of those. It's yeah. a very significant risk factor. And so just easy to overlook. It's, yeah. And it's one of the facets of our health we're compromising all the time. Uh, I'm absolutely guilty. Oh, me too. I'm... I. I've never been a good sleeper, and when I bump into people or come across people who say, "Oh, look, I can fall asleep anywhere, anytime," I am so jealous. If I could nominate a, a health superpower, that would be it. I am so on side with this. It is a superpower. I was going to say uh, use that exact word, uh, but not, not me. Me too. I'm, I'm also, uh, you know, like a not a great sleeper. And uh, I tell you what, I've had friends, especially at university, who could just fall asleep on the bus, you know, like uh, between lectures. Uh, they were very productive people. Hey, um, not the Chinese plague, but the Chinese curse. We live in interesting times, don't we, Dr Sharma? And it's all uh, happening uh, over yonder. I had a bit of a boring year 2019, and I did <laughs> wish that things picked up a bit. And it was a real monkey paws wish, really. Uh, I mean, my goodness, what the uh, the... 
if you if you've been even you, even if you have not been keeping up with the news, you couldn't keep away from it. Yeah. With everything happening overseas with uh, with yeah. COVID and some some very famous people, it, um, it hunts or, you down. <laughs> yeah. Um, and just one last thing: you were called out for being part of the big conspiracy this past week, Doctor Sharma. I saw uh, somebody slide into your social media feed, going, "Your." I think the exact words were, you are denying this because you're part of the conspiracy. Oh, that's right, yeah, and we will remember you, and after the government's taken, we'll come to you. Uh, and this is all posted quite publicly. I, I thought this is hilarious. How do you so respond? start to DM this, this guy and have a conversation with him. And I'll, I'll tell you this, there's been progress. Uh, don't worry, like, he's not, the guy's not actually changed his mind, but when he was formally believing that, uh, you know, I was genuinely part of this conspiracy, you know, of COVID, he, by the end, is like, look, you're either just an idiot or completely being brainwashed. Yeah. So, you know, we've we ended on better terms than we started off on. Oh, good. <laughs> good. And of course, you would deny it, you know, because you're part of the conspiracy, you would deny it. I mean, it's really baked into the conspiracy theories. <laughs> yeah. the, uh, the lack of evidence is is exactly what's been deliberately snuffed out. So. Exactly, exactly. Hey, you've got a guest lined up for us. Absolutely, yes. Uh, so very shortly we'll be having Professor Greg Murray to talk about something very relevant today, uh, seasonal affective disorder. Um, something that I've always had a bit of an interest in, but every time I've looked at, you know, under the hood, I found it you know, quite complicated and a bit muddled. So we've got an expert who's going to help shed some light on that. Yeah, well, that'll be that'll be awesome. And I, I, I'm, I'm suspecting there's a twist in the tail if we think about what it might mean around times of isolation as well, because we know mental health's been widely discussed in relation to COVID lockdowns and so on. So at this time of year, um, it might be interesting to hear some thoughts on that front as well. And then later on, we're going to have a chat about an article that caught my eye in the Journal of Health Policy um, uh, recently, and they're um, setting out a bit of a research agenda. Let's pretend for a moment that research funding in Australia is not threatened. <laughs> and, oh, and, and, and uh, yeah, that's for another time. So let's assume there is actually going to be research in Australia um, in the future. Um, but this is a really interesting article, and they set it out. It's just an agenda paper. Um, it's not heavy going, but but um, they set out um, a few thoughts for us about how we can use the experience of COVID-19 from a health policy context um, and uh, set an agenda. And I think there's a lot of interest there, especially I'm really looking forward to talking to you about the role of um, the media and expertise in this, Dr Sharma. Yeah, no, looking forward to that too. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. I want to get into to what we're going to talk about with our expert today. Brilliant. Uh, in fact, it's something that certainly affects me and I know a lot of other people know it as well as we get deeper and deeper into spring and the axis favours our hemisphere. The days are getting longer and warmer. And in this country, at least, as of last night, we've tipped over into daylight savings, uh, giving us more waking hours of sunlight. And it's hard for me not to notice my spirits lift during this time every year. And every year I'm asking myself, am I just happier now because of the weather? Or conversely, is this actually my normal? And was I just feeling abnormally flat during the preceding months? In fact, I, I've often asked myself, was I experiencing what we'd otherwise commonly call the uh, the winter blues, or was it something more severe, seasonal 
affective disorder. So seasonal affective disorder, often recurred, uh, referred to by its acronym SAD, uh, is believed to be a form of depression that occurs seasonally in the colder months, something that was first recognised back in the 80s by the National Institute of Mental Health. And now it's a term that many people have heard, and it's even recognised in the Bible of Psychiatry, as we call it, the, the, uh, the DSM-5. But as we often see in medicine, when you look deeper into some established truths, the reality is often a bit muddier and perhaps even a bit controversial. So to shed some clarity on this, we have Professor Greg Murray today, who is the director of Swinburne's Centre of Mental Health and a clinical psychologist with an international reputation for research looking at mood disorders and circadian rhythms, which feeds perfectly into what we want to talk about today. So, Professor, we've got you on the line. Welcome. How are you doing with uh, one hour's less sleep this morning? <laughs> yeah, I'm fine, thanks. Yeah, it, it is uh, one of the things that happens at this time of year. We all lose an, an hour's sleep. But as you, you said in your, your intro, we also gain the warmer weather and the longer days. And uh, if, if your football team's any good, you, you gain a happy time of year. That's not the case for me. <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. Well, personally, I've got to happy with the trade-off. Uh, so, so, Professor, you know, the more I kind of look into seasonal affective disorder, the, the, the kind of fuzzier the definitions get. So before we go into what you found with your review of the literature, uh, perhaps I wanted to kind of define what we're talking about. So what do you think people and psychologists and doctors are usually talking about when we talk about seasonal affective disorder? And what are the kind of common theories that, that I suppose come uh, as, as part of that? Yeah, look, that's a really good question, and I, I really like talking about this topic, actually, because it's a classic example of what a difficult space we work in in mental health with the description and explanation and treatment of uh, problems that people have psychologically. Um, and seasonal affective disorder is a great example of that because, in fact, there's a blurring or a the, the, the diagnosis has always involved a triangulation, if you like, of a description of a phenomenon, explanation of the phenomenon, what causes it, and what its best treatment should be. And so those three elements come together in the popular understanding of what seasonal affective disorder is. So the popular understanding, I think, in the general community, and having done media like this for quite a long time, I think it's, it's pretty clear that most people think of it as as what the original proponents of, of seasonal affective disorder meant. And what they meant was they've discovered a unique form of depression which is caused somehow by the shorter photo periods of winter, the shorter day lengths of winter, and therefore is specifically treated by bright light. And they added another dimension to it as well, which is very interesting. The other dimension to the meaning of the term was that this is a severe form of normal variation in mood that the whole population experiences, what we might call seasonality of mood. So that was the picture they painted in 1984 when, as you say, Norm Rosenthal and Al Louis and a, pa and a patient, in fact, wrote the first paper on seasonal affective disorder, came out of the National Institutes of Mental Health, near where uh, the President of the United States is currently having his COVID treated just across the road. I see. Um, Reputable. What's that? Reputable place. Reputable place, yeah, yeah. So one of the authors on that paper was someone who 
got into very big trouble for overly biological descriptions of behaviour amongst urban youth and, and lost his position for, in the NIM, in the National Institutes of Health at that time. But yes, extreme, extremely reputable place. Um, uh, and so they put together this story that had three parts. There is this unique form of depression. It's caused by the lack of light in wintertime. It's treated by bright light and it's an extreme version of normal seasonal variation in mood. Um, now, all of those three things, are, uh, what's the best way to characterise it? At least contentious, if not unsupported by data. And, and then the next thing to say, you know, the, the next thing to say is you mentioned the, the Bible of psychiatry, the DSM. Seasonal affective disorder never actually got into DSM. Uh, the proponents, of course, wanted it to. They said, we've discovered this unique form of depression. It should be recognised as a unique form of depression. And DSM, I think, wisely didn't quite buy it. So it, had, it had, something like that appears in DSM, but not specifically that. The thing that appears in DSM, which is probably a more valid idea than seasonal affective disorder, as I've just described it, is the DSM says some people who get depression get recurrent depression. And of those people who get recurrent depression, some people get it in a seasonal pattern. So you can see that that's not actually um, assuming those three elements of the definition that Norm Rosenthal and his mates at National Institutes of Mental Health uh, proposed. All DSM says is... Some people get depression, for some people it's recurrent, and for a subset of those, it happens in a seasonal pattern, typically winter. So winter depression uh, is, uh, the definition of that is quite well operationalised. It's where people meet criteria for clinical depression multiple times in their lifetime, and those pattern, those episodes tend to fall at a particular season of the year and they're typically referring to winter, and are much less common for those individuals in um, other times of the year. Now, notice what's missing from that. There's no implication that it's a severe form of population-wide variation in mental health. There's no implication that it's caused by light. There's no implication that it should be treated by light. So there are, there are kind of two definitions in the, in the public consciousness of seasonal affective disorder. One is the tightly operationalised version in DSM, which of course is what DSM is good at. Validity is what it's dubious. <laughs> we're, we're dubious about it for, but in terms of definitions, it's really good. It's very concrete. And the other definition is the proponents of seasonal affective disorder, which have this uh, much more elaborated description of what the, what the condition is. So this is fascinating. I mean, clearly, as you're saying, the DSM is actually much narrower than one would expect, uh, judging by what you know, the kind of popular the, the the definition tends to be in in conversation in the public, but even amongst doctors, I suppose, um, doctors and psychologists. 
And part of this is you'd almost expect some uh, uh, some uh, phenomenon, some evidence to kind of be around that we often mentioned that, for example, uh, the rates of depression are differ by latitude. Maybe there's more or less uh, antidepressants prescribed in, in winter. Like, does that actually – is that what's actually found in the data or is that – because these are the kind of th- things that are spouted, I suppose, by, by people who yeah. do tend to believe in it. Exactly. No, and the short answer to that is no, it's not reliably found in the data. So you mentioned one key idea that has always been around, and whenever I'm asked about this, people say, but, you know, up in the northern, up in Norway and stuff, you know, they, it must be terrible. Um, one of the first sceptical papers about seasonal affective disorder was, in fact, written by a group of psychiatrists in the north of Norway, in the Arctic Circle, in, in Tromso up there which is where the, the most northerly university in the world lives, but well, in, well into the Arctic Circle. So they, they have a couple of months a year where there is virtually no light and they get the midnight sun, which is the definition of the Arctic Circle. Um, um, and they said, oh, we were kind of surprised to hear that these guys in Washington said there's problems with uh, lack of light in wintertime causing depression because we've never seen it. Um, and in fact, they reported that yes, there are obviously very significant changes between, you know, the two months of almost complete darkness versus the two months of uh, almost continuous sunlight. But it's not in that part of the world characterised in terms of mood changes. Uh, in fact, um, symptom that is sometimes, or the, the problem that is sometimes reported in Tromso in, in northern Norway in the Arctic Circle in the middle of winter is difficulty getting to sleep. So insomnia and tiredness, um, mm. which is, a, 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 in fact, the opposite of which sleep changes that are expected to go with seasonal affective disorder, where um, see, the depressions that go with seasonal affective disorder tend to, in, in uh, the, the view of the literature, the, that proposes this, tend to have that version of depression where people uh, sleep more and eat more and have carbohydrate craving. So one particular version of those physical symptoms of depression. If anything, in the far north of Norway, the only symptom that arises is the sleep symptom and it goes the other way in terms of uh, less sleep. So, uh, and, and, and more broadly, so it's just an example of one particular locale, but that latitude hypothesis that you just mentioned, that seasonal affective disorder would be more marked the further north you go away from the equator, that really has never been strongly supported. Professor Murray, listening to you talk about the geographical aspect um, and still maybe thinking along the epidemiological line, aside from geography, when we talk about um, mental health, we often talk about things like diet and socioeconomic status. Is there anything to suggest that that's relevant to to what we're calling um, seasonal affective disorder? No, there's no. Well, short answer, no, because as I say, what's interesting in terms of uh, uh, taxonomies of mental disorder and characterising mental disorder is is the emphasis when we look at seasonal affective disorder, on this light explanation. Uh, so the, the other type of explanation, which I thought you might be going to ask about, is obviously weather. 
which is which is related to to uh, seasons, and so that's the other one that people tend to look at. But there hasn't been any specific investigation that I'm aware of that starts to look at other covariates of uh, of depression, you know, other covariates that might be relevant to the prevalence of depression across time. But you know, the broader answer to your question is, of course. Of course, uh, any form of depression has multiple causes. Uh, you know, that's my starting point, that it's a complex biopsychosocial phenomenon and socioeconomic classes is a very significant predictor of all mental disorders, mood disorders included. So we, whenever anyone says, well, we found a, a type of depression that is actually fully explained by this particular mechanism... I think our starting point should be sceptical. So I, I, I kind of agree with the assumption under your question, but that, that there is uh, no data that has explored how that might uh, uh, play a role in the prevalence of winter depression. Part of my thinking there was uh, when we think about, you know, North Norway, for example, or Iceland or, or um, anywhere in the, in, the, in the extreme north, uh, the diet would be different, wouldn't it? I mean, it's largely fish-based, and that is um, often fish and fish diets are often relate um, often raised as related to mental health in some fashion. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a reasonable hypothesis. Um, that's a reasonable hypothesis. But uh, as always, you know, with epidemiology and any sort of looking for causal pathways, the devil's in the detail, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so. Tromso is, uh, for example, just to take one example, is, is uh, I, I've never been there, but I understand a, you know, a, a very uh, 21st century Western city. So, if, yeah. and, and so, yeah, there might be subpopulations. What's the indigenous, indigenous people, the Sami? Yep. They may have more traditional diets, but, uh, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of pizza eaten in Tromso and KFC <laughs> as well. Yeah. So, so it's, it's all, the devil's always in the detail. In fact, when we try and map out the effects of the environment on mental health, it gets very, very complicated very quickly, doesn't it? You know, you, you know, Google Tromso and, and, and check out their nightlife. It looks very much like Melbourne did before lockdown. Um, <laughs> and, and the same is true with all these sort of broad stereotypes, isn't it? That it doesn't take long to remind yourself well, it depends, you know. So we think of dark and we associate that with all sorts of things. We think of winter and we associate that with all sorts of things. But the way I always explain this is, you know, if I asked you what time of year you feel most down or flat, and people just call up images, don't they? In Melbourne, we call up images of cold, grey weather. But then I remind you... Well, what about a beautiful sunny summer day when you've just got a parking ticket or just <laughs> broken up with your girlfriend or, you know, found out you didn't get that grant or that, that position? Or let me remind you in winter of, you know, that beautiful evening snuggled up by the fire with, you know, the, the yeah. warm stews, the, the warmth, the broths and the lovely state of being cave-like for a while. So it's easy to remind people of these sort of more granular details and, and then you start thinking, oh, yeah, why why would that be such a powerful determinant of my mood? And, and when it comes to light, of course, which is the big explanatory factor in seasonal affective disorder, it's an interesting hypothesis and, of course, it gets us thinking in terms of evolution and hibernation. 
again, you know, once yeah. you look at hibernation, different species respond very differently to the change in photo period across the year. Um, hibernation being just one way of doing it. I wonder, I wonder if uh, with our experience of isolation during lockdown in COVID, there's a distinction to be made, and, and given that it happened during winter here, I wonder if there's any emerging distinction between those who were living, say, in apartment blocks, especially if they were living by themselves, and those who actually had a backyard or something, or even perhaps a, uh, a park nearby. Yeah, I don't know of any data. So you're talking about the possible exposure to light, well, for example? I'm also wondering whether space is a factor. Yeah. So if you yeah. can move about, you know, you were talking about, uh, you know, that sitting by the fire has got that cosy feeling and that there's a sense of comfort there. But also if you're in a confined space, that may affect um, affect your experience of it. Yeah, absolutely. So there's, I mean, you know, for someone like my, myself who, who tries to think across all these different dimensions of risk factors for the distress of any kinds, I can think of, you know, dozens of things that are different uh, associated with having a backyard. Uh, socioeconomic class being one of them, yeah. age, being, age being another one, light exposure being one, exercise being one. Uh, less social tension in the household because you might have literally more room to get away from your spouse who's irritating you because of, you know, the way they talk or the way they eat their food. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, there would be all sorts of differences. The challenge for us in uh, psychology and psychiatry, because what we care about is actually not so... Ultimately, we care less about explaining these things and more about helping people with these things is which of those mechanisms might actually be relatively important and which might be malleable. So what we often end up doing, and I do this with seasonal affective disorder too, I'll say, look, if you find yourself to be someone who gets down in the dumps in wintertime, obviously, obviously that's your experience, that's the facts of it. And one of the things that might matter is light exposure. And another thing that might matter is exercise. And another sort of thing that might matter is all the other things that we, you know, we know are important in, in mood, things like appraisals, you know, the cognitive behavioural therapy stuff. All those things will matter. Um, and, yeah, it's, 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 it's that more holistic view of, of what the determinants of this thing may be, but more importantly, what might be useful for you to do to, to change that if you, if you find yourself to be someone who has this pattern. And so just notice we've, we've just had a shift in topic there. We're talking about does seasonal affective disorder exist as an entity? And now we're talking about individuals who might have that experience. And I suppose what I'm distinguishing between there is obviously if a person says to me they have that experience, then that's it. That's a thing. I, I completely agree, and and uh, and that's that that lived experience there has so much validity, and and whatever the statistical reality of a seasonal affective uh, disorder is, at least that conversation provides this this great kind of jumping on off uh, on off point uh, to to really to to delve into the the patient experience and see what other factors may or may not influence uh, their their mood and behaviour, and all we want at the end of the day is uh, is, is good outcomes. Um, and it's a it's kind of nice reminder that to not be too reductive, I suppose, about the uh, the, the causes of depression. Um, as you mentioned, there's all these other elements to it. Some of them we know, some of them we don't. Um, but I'm, I'm so grateful we had an expert clarify 
uh, some of the uh, some of the perhaps kind of controversy, I suppose, around seasonal affective disorder. It's certainly something that I've changed my mind on uh, over the last several months. So, uh, Professor, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. We've been speaking with um, Professor Greg Murray talking um, seasonal affective disorder. Um, well, that was really interesting. I, you know, I'd, I'd made assumptions, uh, Dr. Sharma, about about what it meant, and um, my mind started racing. I probably didn't wasn't really very cohesive with my thinking there at, um, about the diet. But I just, when we ever we talk about mental health, we talk about exercise, we talk about diet, we talk about um, social connections, etc. And as the professor was saying, clearly there's multiple factors. And the temptation to just label something as seasonal seems to have gotten away from us in some respects. It does, doesn't it? And it's one of those things where you can't really control uh, that very much. And uh, there's there's certain benefits to, to talking about uh, depression in some ways. And it's talking about you know kind of reducing everything down to weather doesn't give the individual a hell of a lot of sense of control and ownership and authorship about what to do. So I think it's really important to, to be reasonably kind of sceptical about these things and look mm. at any and all the other factors. Um, um, Professor Murray mentioned that uh, Tromso has, has the world's most northern um, university in the world. I've got two pieces of trivia for you. Oh, far away. I've been to that university a couple of times in my previous life. And um, it is gorgeous, and it is a gorgeous, gorgeous town. But not only does Tromso have the most northern university in the world, you know what else it has? Mm. The most northern brewery in the world. Ah. Wow. <laughs> and and at one, on one visit, I think I met, spent more time at the brewery than I did on campus at Tromso. Um, but that's a by the by. Anyway, the most northern, Tromso, uh, Norway. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. You would have quite literally needed to be living under a rock um, to have missed the experience of living in COVID, one way or another. It's there's no one thing that. Uh, this uh, moment in history tells us is that we've all got this in common now, forevermore. And one of the things that uh, a lot of people are turning their mind to, certainly um, in my um, in my neck of the woods, is around how policy can respond to these sorts of crises. You know, the the um, on one level it's simply a health crisis. On another level, it's an economic crisis. On another, it's a social crisis. Um, and and so on and so forth, depending on where you sit in this experience. A, um, a recent article published in the Journal of Health Policy has tried to establish a an agenda, a way of framing thinking about um, about uh, the experience of COVID and how we can respond, whether you be a hospital, a police force, um, universities and research, um, or the economy more broadly. Um, the article that uh, Dr. Sharma and I are taking a look at sets out four distinct areas. Decision-making structures, right? So thinking about um, who, how decisions are made in a time of crisis, and by definition, time of crisis involves very quick um, decision-making. So what does that look like? It's looking at um, healthcare systems and coupling that with thinking about healthcare values. 
um, healthcare services uh, systems and values. So not just considering um, the um, system and its capacity, but actually values around um, what you might call in uh, accident emergency triage, you know, who gets looked at first and all of that sort of thing. And how do uh, health systems um, organise their sense of values uh, in response to caring for um, people? Um, you know, and that's coupled with ideas of uh, who's most affected. Um, then the policy takes a look at mediatization and language, the way that we talk about a crisis, um, the language we use. And again, this is going to be very dependent on perspective. If you're working in the health sector and that's the, uh, that's the perspective you uh, come at, you're likely to be using language that's um, embedded in, in health. Likewise, with if, you're, if it's economics, then um, you're going to be looking at this through that lens and so on and so forth. And, of course, the media itself, the reportage, the way that media reports this, um, does it um, conflate issues? Does it, uh, does it clarify issues? Or does it actually create um, an enhanced sense of crisis and, indeed, panic? Um, and then the article goes on to look at expertise. What's the role of expertise? And many people um, uh, uh, at the very start of the COVID crisis were, were trying to unpack who should be making the decisions here. Should it be the epidemiologists and the infectious diseases people and so on and so forth? Or should it be the politicians because it's in a democracy and ultimately they're accountable um, and the tensions therefore unfolded? Dr Sharma, you've had a chance to look at this um, uh, article. Perhaps let's go backwards on that and start with expertise, because I know you've got some strong thoughts about this, about who's the expert in these scenarios. Well, you know, I'll say this. I had some strong thoughts about this. <laughs> and, uh, you know, COVID's been very clarifying. And uh, I realised where I perhaps had a, a very, you know, a simplistic view that that's been challenged. You know, I, I look at the way... Um, I used to look back on in terms of health policy and go, well, my goodness, yeah, how does it we have health ministers who don't have any background in health, etc. Uh, and it, you look at how, the way that COVID's kind of played out. Um, you know, two countries in my mind which have had genuine health experts at the kind of absolute forefront of their COVID response policy have been Taiwan. Their their vice president is an epidemiologist, hmm. and uh, and Sweden with uh, uh, Professor Anders Tegnell, an epidemiologist who's really been the, the kind of the architect um, of, of their uh, coronavirus uh, response yeah, uh, policy. And yet, Sh Shall we throw in Angela Merkel in there, who's a PhD in chemistry, I believe? Chemistry and physics, yeah. I guess the, the, the reason I was referring to the, the, that example specifically of Taiwan versus uh, Sweden is you, you've had experts with essentially the, the same – fundamental education who ended up with radically different policies and views um, because it's not, I, I doubt they disagree about the science, but the, the, mm. the, the issue is that just framing it about epidemiology itself does not provide all the answers. You need almost kind of this broader consultation of uh, experts of other fields, social sciences, politics, and, and all these other things. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if, if, whereas I had previously just kind of believed, well, you just get the health experts in and they'll find <laughs> the best solution. We've, we've, you know, we've now got quite disparate solutions uh, you know, by, by experts of the same field. Almost certainly nobody's going to argue that there's only one actor that should have the, um, have the function of, quote-unquote, the expert in, uh, in this. It's 
perhaps uh, more about identifying what the mix is, um, you know, and finding how different types of expertise can complement each other rather than work in um, competition with each other. So we're seeing a debate at the moment um, after, you know, six, eight months of this um, where even people who were quite enthusiastic about the lockdown six or eight months ago are getting less and less enthusiastic about the lockdown, not because of any misunderstanding about uh, how potentially dangerous COVID as an infectious uh, virus is, um, but starting to become very anxious around the economy. And the long-term effect, if we don't start having... Um, economic activity going on. So we've got the expert on the economic side of it, certain quarters of that that expertise, and certain quarters of um, those who want to keep us locked down. And then there's the political driver, which is, you know, you can see it in Dan Andrews every morning when he's just so, you know, he would never say this, I, I guess, out loud, but the idea of being locked down during Christmas is a political issue as much as it is a health issue, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. So, oh my goodness, what it's the invisible timeline that I think, uh, yeah, we're, we're really operating to, aren't we? Sure is. What about media? Um, you've been very active in the media and been doing a great job. I um I, I stress, and, and I, I'm sure I'm not alone in thinking that that's the case. Um, but the media has played a very instrumental role in the way that um, policy has been unfolding. Uh, in some cases. Uh, the media has been very agitating um, and very partisan, and we see that also in Dan Andrews' um, morning briefings. And um, just recently, in the last couple of days, we saw the footage coming out of St Kilda Beach um, with the crowds down there that was disturbing in and of itself, but then more footage has come to light about how the media was corralling people I think this, it is a prime example of something we've actually seen over and over again uh, throughout the, 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 the COVID response, which is um, it's it's not necessarily true that the, the media is just reporting uh, exactly you know, what's happening. It's their by by their very involvement they start to to, to affect the, uh, the exactly the item that they're reporting on. And the, the framing that, that that occurs around that. In fact, I think that's probably the the, the overarching lesson I've se- seen from my involvement in the media is so is how much the media can frame the debate, the parameters, and what matters and what what doesn't. Uh, and it begins, you know, at, at six or seven in the morning as as they look for the stories that are going to make the paper that day, and uh, and the way they choose to report uh, uh, the the news. It, it uh, we talk about a kind of a twenty four hour news cycle, and yet um, when it, when the same issue is hit up in the same way continually, it really tends to alter people's priorities and I dare say even kind of values. Really. Yeah, yeah, and and again uh, the the politics overlaps with health um, motivations, you know, public health motivations. So if if the um, if the language about um, well, you remember we were talking about social distancing as a, and that language in the very early days was um, in mm. contrast uh, with what it meant, um, and things like herd, you know, just ending into the vernacular concepts like herd immunity and being antisocial if you're if you're um, not wearing a mask and that kind of language, which is a description of people's behaviour, but it actually drives policy. If um, if a government can convince the electorate that 
X behaviour is antisocial, then that provides uh, a certain kind of legitimacy for making a policy, a law, a regulation where you can fine people for not um, not conforming. Yeah, it's it's you know, just the, the power of words, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, and that's certainly something I underestimated, um, you know, kind of early on. And you know, part of me really does wonder. There's probably some so, some good research that can be done into, for example passing a physical versus social distancing and what you know what effect it may or may not have on the compliance with with the policy and people's people's acceptance uh, of these things so well yes and, and even that language um, that Trump tried and others tried to use you know with the China virus as opposed to the coronavirus you know and that establishes another kind of context for policy making in this case you know anti-immigrant, you know, and and anti the other, and that the other is the is the threat to our health and well being, um, and that you know that can be quite poisonous. Yeah, very. Um, what about healthcare systems and values? Now, I, I, you work in the healthcare systems, but you see, and you see, um, you see values played out every day. There's the values that are organised um, around the healthcare workers for a start and we've spoken a lot about PPE and in you know at various times through this experience um, you know are we valuing our health care services workers the way that we should just by making sure they're safe um, making sure that the demands on their physical and mental well-being in you know a highly volatile work environment are being looked after and then there's the values around how to prioritize attention to to those who are um, afflicted. Yeah, and this is something that was uh, has been kind of very complex the way it's it's played out in COVID. So, for example, I think we've seen some, a lot of genuine care and compassion from from the community, you know, and suppose yeah, leaders and healthcare workers too about uh, the elderly and, and and people in in aged care homes and people who are kind of very severely sick. And so much of our attention, even obviously very recently with all the deaths in aged care we've had, but even very early on, was was all about bolstering the ICU capacity. And mm. uh, to be honest, you know, despite any delays that might have happened, there's been no shortage of kind of money and logistical support for people who either are, you know, are going to get very sick uh, because of what's going to happen in, in a what I would call an acute sense. And yet what we've also seen – um, is the almost kind of this compensation that's occurred where a, a preventative health potentially has kind of fallen by the wayside. So while we've been focusing very much on uh, the people who might get extremely sick and need oxygen and immediate intervention because of COVID, um, a lot of the uh, things like cancers and heart diseases, things that are kind of going under undiagnosed, which are uh, really kind of falls into kind of primary care, the kind of unsexy side of medicine, uh, so to speak. A lot of the attention's potentially kind of shifted away from that, uh, which is something personally, you know, my profession has all been about in general practice, yeah. which is um, trying to shift public consciousness towards these kind of invisible um, kind of the slow burn disease processes. One of the um, themes, uh, underlying themes of this article by the authors is, you know, what's what's going to be the legacy of this experience? There's, you know, no suggestion or certainly very little suggestion that COVID's going away anytime soon. You know, we've started even using language like COVID normal to distinguish it from pre-COVID. Um, what in in health system terms? What do you see the uh, the immediate legacy of this experience being in terms of behaviours and 
the welfare of health services workers? Yeah, that's an interesting one. So, look, I think one of the things that's been permanently changed is the relationship that healthcare workers, particularly frontline workers, will have with um, hospital systems and bureaucracy and administration. I think it's uh, it's become clear that things are a bit more adversarial than that than we kind of imagined. Knowing that that there are some basic rights and, and protections you kind of need to fight for. So I think that's going to be one of the enduring legacies for any doctor who's kind of worked on the front line during this time. Mm. Um, I think there's potentially also going to be, um, I mean, I mean, it so much depends on, I suppose, what happens in terms of a, a vaccine and, and our strategic response to, to COVID kind of in, in the meantime. Um, I, and, uh, you know, the, the systems we build around a pandemic response and, how much, uh, how much, I suppose, investment is driven towards potential threats in the future, and do we kind of uh, our health systems now bolstered yeah. uh, in a way uh, that's not necessarily to do with you know the 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 short term demands we might expect, but there's a cultural risk of kind of like over investing and overspending to uh, to prevent against you know kind of calamities that one day might hit. Um, and so, so I, yeah, I wondered how that's going to change um, the the kind of culture of spending we have, rather than the very kind of short term knee jerk uh, reactions we now currently have to funding and the way we organise uh, hospital and uh, and healthcare structures. One of the things that I was uh, thinking of during the week, um, especially uh, with our, our colleague who can't be with us here today, with um, um, neonatal, I wonder how many young people, you know, maybe high school age, um, who have gone through this experience and have gone, you know what, I really want to be a healthcare worker of some sort, whether that be a doctor or they want to work in infectious diseases. You know, we see uh, in times, in other versions of crisis that might be a war for example there's often an uptake in people who want to become um you know join join the military or we saw you know say with um 9-11 in new york there was a dramatic spike in recruitment for police and fire uh, engineers part of the first responder initiative i wonder if covid is actually uh, disproportionately not in a good way um influencing the decisions that a lot of young people are making about their careers? Look, I imagine it would be because, look, believe it or not, even for a lot of us in this career already, we've found this to be a very you know, reinvigorating time. It's, uh, I think for a lot of us, uh, the job turned into a vocation uh, yeah. over this time. There's a sense of meaning and agency that comes from being involved in this. So I, I would not be surprised at all if that's yeah. what we see and, and people should feel very inspired to do this because, uh, you know, when you, when you walk into this thing with inspiration, <laughs> you know, you, you, you make things happen. Yeah, too right. Look, time's flying. We've just got a couple of quick announcements and we'll be back very shortly to wrap things up. You're on Radiotherapy. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. I want to do a big thanks to all those people who subscribed right through to the very end of uh, September. Um, thanks for the love you gave the station, much needed. Um, if you, like me, have started to receive your uh, card and whatnot in the mail... It's a nice little reminder you're part of a great community um, and fabulous things ahoy and uh, good luck to you all for the prizes that might be coming your way on the back of that subscription. Um, Dr Sharma, 
with one minute to go, we can't um, not mention um, the goings-on uh, up north. What do you make of diagnosis at a distance? Is the is the information just too muddy? Oxygen, no oxygen, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera? Oh, look, it is absolutely muddy. We've got statements made by Trump's physicians that have been contradicted by the White House. And, uh, and uh, you know, there's there's this murky ethics of, you know, is it kind of right to do this um, with, you know, diagnose a kind of patient by distance? We're all speculating. I certainly am. Um, but, you know, the stakes are very high. We're talking about, a, you know, a man who holds a nuclear briefcase. Uh, we want to know what's going to happen. And particularly because he's certainly been very complicit in America's COVID-19 response. There, there's, oh. it's, a, it's an irony too delicious to, to let up yeah. uh, and uh, to, to, to go untouched by, uh, by social media and, and commentary for sure. The uh, diagnosis by distance, it's uh, alive and well if something else isn't, that's for sure. Look, we've got to go. Thanks for joining in. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.